It's my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest preacher, Dr. Jay Harvey. Dr. Harvey is an assistant professor of pastoral theology and executive director at Reformed Theological Seminary in New York City. He's been a great resource and friend to us as we continue to search for a new assistant pastor of our student ministries. And so as part of that, I invited him out to Montclair so we get an experience reading Montclair, get a taste of who we are. And so I'm so glad he accepted our invitation and great to have him here. And I do say that I really appreciate his sermon title, which is longer than most. The, the key to a truly adventurous life from a man who changed the world. Welcome, Dr. Harvey. It's great to have you with us. Well, it's so nice to be here. If I get emotional at some point during the service, um, forgive me. This uh, Being here in the congregation stirs up so many fond memories for me because I graduated from Princeton University in 1995, and Montclair reminds me a lot of Princeton Junction, West Windsor, uh, Princeton. I love North Jersey towns. I uh, went to seminary, came back after college uh, to minister in Princeton. And then in 2002, when I came into the Metro New York Presbytery, which this church used to be a part of, for those of you who are blessed not to be Presbyterians by nature, uh, Presbytery is the regional church. And so this church used to be part of um, the Metro New York Presbytery. Now it's called the West Hudson um, uh, Presbytery for obvious geographical reasons. But the church was just getting started then with a pastor named Randy Lovelace. And I um, heard stories about it, but I just want you to know it's such an encouragement to me to be here personally uh, you can just feel the life and, and health uh, in this church. And I know that you do not take your church for granted, but I want to double down and encourage you not to take your church for granted. Um, uh, a healthy church like this is increasingly a rarity. Um, don't take the wonderful musicians you have for granted. Don't take the pastor you have for granted, um, the beautiful resources that you have here. Don't take each other for granted above all. Uh, but care for one another and, and prioritize commitment to this body because it really is a treasure. You can just feel it's life-giving to me here even as I experience it. So it's a joy uh, to be with you here uh, for many reasons. Appreciate getting, getting to know your pastor, uh, Danny, and um, I love youth. I wish I could volunteer to be your youth pastor. These wonderful children here. I've always loved working with youth um, and uh, just, just so nice to be here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this text it's a long text. Rest assured, I won't uh, treat every part of it, uh, so you can take comfort in that. My iPad only has 18% battery as well, so that's, <laughs> that'll also be an encouragement to you. And <clears throat> the sermon title, uh, pastors um, struggle with how to title sermons. You can basically either title a sermon according to the content, which is, which is boring um, but useful, or you can try to title a sermon according to what you hope it gets across, which is risky and somewhat misleading and, and can overpromise and underdeliver. So there's really no great way to do this, um, but that, indeed, that is the title of this sermon. And as you read the text, uh, you can look for some things that, um, as I study this text afresh, I, I, I typically don't, just because of the way I'm worked up, don't re-preach sermons. It's mainly just because I'm sort of by nature a bit ADD and I get bored of a sermon. I don't want to fall asleep preaching my own sermon. It doesn't help you to stay awake doing it as well. I, I'm not opposed to doing it. I do it sometimes. But this text, um, when your pastor asked me to preach, I, I've been drawn to it, and I, and I was drawn to see it in a different way um, through some, some things that I think are clearly in the text, but particularly to see this as a text that Peter is writing at the end of his life and really commending, uh, commending himself in a unique way uh, 
as an encouragement, as an example to another generation, to the generation that he's, he's leaving behind. And so as you read the text, you can think of it like that. Now, when I get into the message, um, I'll probably, uh, there may be a few words different. One word that'll be different in your translation than what I use will be where this translation is a perfectly good word, in some ways um, even better for our immediate apprehension, is the word goodness you'll see as I read. And, and when I preach, I'll probably speak about virtue. But it's the Greek word erite. Um, it's a unique feature of this particular passage. So in the text I read, it'll, have, it'll say goodness. And when I preach, you'll hear me say virtue. So let's hear from God's word. 2 Peter 1, 1 to 15. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to conform to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I too will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would open it to our understanding and allow us to see truth, goodness, beauty, and our Lord Jesus in it. We pray it in his name. Amen. I recall uh, for you the way that this congregation uh, brings forth memories uh, for me. And as I was preparing this message, um, I recall a conversation I had with my mother. And it must have been when I was maybe only five years old. And she, I remember her saying, I've never forgotten this, that if you have just one true friend in life, uh, you have a great gift. That even to have one friend is, is a great gift. That's, that always stuck with me. And uh, when I moved to New York in 2018, I'd been pastoring, our family had been pastoring in Delaware at the time for 13 years. Um, I realized that my best childhood friend 
was an adjunct professor at Parsons and lived a little bit further upstate, but would come in to teach. And um, I, I, this is the friend that, you know, I grew up in the days of extreme free-range parenting. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and seriously, that all changed. Some of you are old enough to remember the Adam Walsh story. I remember, like, on a dime, that that kind of free-range parenting changed around that uh, episode, tragic, uh, horrible thing with Adam Walsh. Um, but in those days of extreme free-range parenting, what did that look like? Well, this is a time when I would take my bike, I would ride it over to my friend's house, which was, you know, over the hill, through the woods, several miles, across four-lane roads and different neighborhoods and all of that. Um, we, would, we would meet up together, and we would just go ride all around the city of Columbia, um, which is where Randy Lovelace, the founding pastor here, was also from, Columbia, South Carolina. And if we got thirsty or something like that, we would just go up to any neighbor's house and just turn on their spigot or even knock on their door, literally, and ask for a glass of water. Just at random. This is the way it was in these wonderful, extreme, free-range days. This friend was such a good friend that, you know, I would cry if he, if, you know, I, I would try to hide it. But if, if he was ever sick and wasn't at school, you know, and I would be so sad. You know, if he couldn't come out and play, we would be, we would be devastated. That kind of friend. And I realized, indeed, uh, what an incredible blessing it was to have a friend like that. Now, our friendship uh, went on about like that up until the eighth grade. And then the school, the school system conspired against us. We remained friends, but circumstantially, uh, we were rezoned to different schools. And so I went to one high school, he went to another. And it reminds us that, that friendship like that is something that um, is circumstantial. It does require nurture. And sometimes friendships are just going to fade in what we call God's providence. As things outside of our control, it's nothing to necessarily feel bad about it. And certainly not a reason to become cynical about friendship. Some of you, you know, this is a very transient area. Um, we can develop kind of a cynicism sometimes when we're in transient situations and, and not want to or be afraid to invest with people that are near us. Uh, when, we, when we know, how long is this going to last? I, I really encourage you not to become that way. Uh, God has a time that we can, you know, invest in one another, and as long as that time lasts, we should make use of it. Anyway, this uh, friend and I, we, we separated, and I suppose it, it, at some point we weren't really friends anymore, not through any conflict, but we just went our own ways. And from a faith perspective, um, we definitely went our own ways as well. Um, I tracked with him a little bit, and, uh, and we reconnected briefly in, in 2012, um, I was married by that time with four children. He was still single, getting a PhD in um, architecture from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, led to uh, teaching at Parsons. And I remember we reconnected uh, briefly on, uh, via email, and um, he said to me uh, something that I'll never forget. We tried, and, we, we, and then, then COVID hit, then we never actually connected. So uh, I did Google him upon this sermon. Now he's in Seattle, Washington. So um, I am gonna, I'm going to try to track him down. But um, <clears throat> he said to me, are you, he, he said to me, yeah, I understand now, when I came to him in 2018, came back to New York, he said, I understand that um, you're still teaching mere mortals to be less so. As a witty, very bright guy. What he meant by that was, you're, as a minister, he's an atheist, so as a minister, what he's saying is, people are human, and as a pastor, what you're doing is you're really trying to challenge people to rise beyond something that's quite po impossible to do. Just human beings, after all. Um, <clears throat> and um, and I, I, 
I forgot how I responded. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't said as an, as an insult, and I didn't take it that way. Um, but it was a good indication of how they were very close friends, and he was so still emotionally, even I think about him, the good feelings that I had uh, from those days um, stick with me. You may have a friend like that yourself. If you do, you can be grateful for it. Um, but what Peter is doing here, he's coming to us. Um, he's coming to us through this letter given to us by God. And what I'd like us to see is he's coming to us very much in the posture of a friend. The reason that God gives us the scriptures written by people, and this is a distinguishing feature from, say, Islam, in the way that the scriptures come to us. The scriptures come to us through human beings, their personality, their circumstances. It comes wrapped in flesh to us. And there are many reasons for that. One of them is simply because we're human and God is not, and we need that to actually philosophically, for God to communicate down to our level. But God wants us to hear from, to learn, to learn uh, about him from people like us. And actually, over the years, I found that the biblical authors have become sort of like friends to me. Um, and I think Peter is speaking to us in this letter as a friend. There is a certain type of spiritual union that we have with all of the church. As you read scripture and you, study, you read Christian literature, you'll hear what C.S. Lewis used to say is the mark of a friend. Oh, you too. Meaning, you see that the way I see that. You feel that the way I feel that. And Peter here comes and he speaks to us as a friend. He comes with that kind of a tone in this letter. And I, I call that out, I'm going to reference uh, why I'm saying that from the text. But you should know when you encounter this particular book especially, it is a book so rich with deep truth uh, so rich with challenging teaching that this personal dimension, I think, is often set aside. It can easily overwhelm a pastor and a scholar because there's so much here to study in an, in an academic and theological level. But look at what I mean when I say that Peter comes to us as a friend here. First of all, um, he opens this letter. He acknowledges that he is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is God's unique gift to the church. That's a pretty high position to hold. And yet, when he addresses this church and us through their address, he says to those who have attained a faith of equal standing, equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a humble thing to say for a guy who preached the first sermon, the first Christian sermon ever, like 3,000 people become Christians at this first sermon. What a humble thing to say for a guy who literally was a pillar of the church. I mean, Jesus said that he's going to build the church on Peter. From a historical perspective, that's exactly what happened. He's the first one leading, and he's the first church planter, if you will. And yet, he's talking to us. And he says, you are just like me. Now, I have a friend, one of my best friends, a really good friend of mine, um, used to play with the Giants and the Patriots before that became a student of ours, and um, I played football, you, you can tell, uh, perhaps, um, <laughs> and I actually played at Princeton, but I wasn't nearly as good as, as this, uh, this guy, and um, it was fun for me, because sometimes after practice, or after games, or even, you know, he, he's, he's a very mature player, and so he would text me, you know, and it was fun for me to interact with him as an NFL football player. It was a lot of fun to kind of share in that experience. But I can tell you, I was not of equal standing with him as a football player, okay? <laughs> I, 
I was peering into a room that I did not ever belong in, never would belong in, right? That's what was fun about it. I wasn't of equal standing to him. He had abilities. He had talents that I just never would approach, no matter how many plyometrics I did. You know, I was never going to be as fast or as explosive or as talented as this person. And so I was never of equal standing with him. We were great friends. He's a great encouragement. How in the world can Peter say that we are of equal standing with him and really and truly mean it? Well, he tells us it's because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That in the kingdom of God, it is not our ability, it is not our merit, it is not our status or our gifting or our background that gives us this belonging in God's family. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, Peter says, you are of equal standing to me. And I believe that Peter believed this because he had gone through things in his own life where he knew that he was a failure and needed the forgiveness on the one hand from Jesus and needed the righteousness on the other. Many of you will remember this is the life of, a man, the life of Peter. Uh, so many things we could recount about his life, but of course one is that the one that God chose to build the church upon first after Jesus rose from the dead was the one that denied Jesus three times. And he denied Jesus three times, having been so enthusiastic to stand with Jesus, that he actually cut off Malchus, a servant of the high priest's ear, when they were arresting Jesus. And Jesus, in like the coolest miracle of all time, just puts the guy's ear back on. <laughs> you know, Peter, he has to crucify me. So i got to put his ear back on now because you're overzealous. So Peter's a bold, adventurous kind of guy. You know, uh, gets out there, gets, gets ahead of himself, gets in trouble, fails miserably. And he believed it when he said that it's only by the righteousness of God that we belong to him and that we're all equal in that sense, for sure. And he comes with this kind of humility as a friend writing to the, his audience here and to us. Secondly, related to this, of him coming in this way as a friend to us this morning. Um, look at verse 12. He says, I come to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. There's a humility in this as well, right? There's no condescension here. Now, those of us who are older remember when we were younger, the, the type of adult we did not like to be around. Um, and sometimes we hate it if we ever sound like that type of adult. And that would be the sort of condescending adult. <laughs> the adult who knows better than, than we knew as a young person. The adult who talks down to us, who doesn't really listen to us, who doesn't believe that our ideas are fresh, have merit, and so forth. Peter is not that kind of an old guy. Um, Christianity in the New Testament doesn't commend that type of a relationship. Christianity actually says older men regard younger men as brothers. And Peter exemplifies this because he tells all this deep stuff. He's like, look, yeah, I know you knew this. <laughs> I know you knew this. And you read this stuff. It's like, I don't know if they knew that or not, actually. That's a lot to say somebody knew. I think he knows it was in them because the Holy Spirit's in them, so it resonates with him. But again, you see the kind of coming alongside the encouragement here. And why is he taking this posture? In verse 7, he's taking this posture <clears throat> because... As he says, he knows his death is coming, verse 14. His, the putting off of his body will be soon. That's a way to say, I know I'm about to die. And what he wants is this generation to be, in verse, uh, verse 8, effective 
and fruitful. He wants to be effective and fruitful. Peter is the type of older person who wants younger people to thrive. He's non-condescending. He's encouraging. He comes to offer his life as one alongside without talking down to so that they and that we, through hearing him as a friend who had so much to share, would not be ineffective or unfruitful. And he comes to us with a burden that we know uh, some particular things about God so that we won't be unproductive or ineffective or unfruitful. There's a verse in Psalm 145, I think it may be four, it says, one generation will commend your mighty works to another. And we're in a time right now in our culture, you know, sociologists study the generation gaps. And the way our culture works right now is one generation will insult another. <laughs> one generation will remind another generation of the faults of another. You know, you people are lazy. We're lazy because you stole all the money for your retirement, you know? You people are lazy. It's like, yeah, house prices went up by twice. What are we going to do? We're never going to be able to buy a house now. Like, we're, so there's this generational warfare um, happening. And, and, and what, Peter's, what Peter reminds us here is, as the body of Christ, one generation commends the mighty works of God to another, not the faults of a generation. So let's start there, back and forth. Generational relationships should be commending God and the power of God. And Peter has a burden, a burden for those who he's leaving behind, that they would know how to be effective and fruitful. And the way that he works this out <clears throat> is that, um, and he, really show, he, shows, he shows his minded mindfulness to communicate with this generation, because one of the unique textual features of this letter that, as I said, can make it very academic, can make it very challenging, is he comes to them with a literary form that is uniquely designed to communicate with Gentile Christians in the language most familiar to them. And that is something called the uh, Greco-Roman virtue list. So you have this list, you know, faith, uh, virtue or goodness, knowledge, self-control, God, so on and so on. He, these lists, this was a feature of Stoic philosophers in the Greco-Roman world that his audience would have resonated with. And Peter comes along as a friend, and he, speaks, and he speaks to them like this. He says, the best things that you desire are placed in your heart by God, and Jesus came to fulfill them, not destroy them. Now, of course, he's going to, he had a luxury in one sense, because the best of desires in ancient philosophy were actually good desires that resonate with a lot of Christian teaching. Um, <clears throat> but that's his approach to them. And he, he comes with this, this virtue list as a point of contact. Um, and at this point, he says to them, um, you've, been, you've heard that what it is to be virtuous or to live the good life is to commit your reason to understanding the way things are and to shape your life accordingly. That's how you would live the virtuous life. And there are these classic virtues, you know, um, temperance, justice, wisdom. Aristotle had a definition of a virtuous action, something along the lines of do the right thing at the right time for the right reason. But all this was to be done just through rational reflection. 
But Peter comes and he says, that's not where it actually starts. He says, this starts with a relationship with God himself. For that very reason, make every effort to, every effort to supplement your faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. Trust in who? Verse 3. Trust in the God who has divine power. Trust in the God who is generous. Therefore, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter commends a God who is generous and who is powerful to the next generation. He says, begin there. You don't begin just with reason. Guess what God isn't contrary to your reason, but you begin with the relationship of this generous, powerful God. You know, it seems to me, I don't know how this resonates with you, but I was thinking about this passage. It seems that a lot of people think God is generous but weak, therefore he can't do anything about all the trouble in the world. Or perhaps people think God is strong but not very generous, so we have to work it out on our own. That's why he doesn't do anything about all the trouble in the world. But the scripture says, no, God is generous and he's strong. He's working his way out through the trouble in the world, and in the end, the scripture says, he's going to set everything right, balance all the scales of justice. Good will be rewarded. Evil will indeed be punished. So Peter commends you, trust in this God. And I want to draw our attention to one particular thing in this list of virtues. And again, I just have to apologize. It's such a, a rich text. You're like, don't apologize to me. We don't want to stay that long. Um, <laughs> uh, it's such a rich text. But I want to focus on this relationship in the sequence between faith, virtue, and knowledge. This is in verse 5, or you would have faith, goodness, and knowledge. So we're going to focus on this relationship. So it's, it's widely thought that there is uh, something to the sequential relationship of these terms. Most biblical scholars agree with this interpretation. It seems to make sense because Peter opens up with love as the first in this list and then closes, I'm sorry, he opens up with faith as the first in the list and the last in the list is love. Remember, Paul will summarize the Christian life in terms of virtues of faith, hope, and love. Peter has faith, this big list, and then he closes in love. It's like a summary of the virtues of the Christian life. So he starts with faith, and then he says, add virtue. Greek, erite, translated goodness very appropriately in the translation that was read, um, translated excellence, um, translated virtue. What's meant here is a type of Moral excellence that leads to a certain type of right action. A moral excellence that leads to a certain type of right action. And the very same word is actually translated excellence in verse 3 of the English Standard Version. The very end of verse 3, his own glory and excellence. Um, I think the version we read probably said his own glory and goodness. If the English Standard Version were doing a better job, it would probably say his own glory and virtue since they how they translate the rest of the passage. The point is this is the quality of God. God has a certain moral excellence that means God always does the right thing. So what I think about this, this moves into this idea of the adventurous life. Peter says, you have faith. That's where you start with trusting this God who is generous. And then you believe this. You believe that the God who is generous is powerful and gracious to stand in the gap. What gap? The gap that occurs when you know what God wants you to do and you're scared to death to do it. <laughs> that gap. The gap that occurs when intuitively you know God wants you to do this, 
but you don't quite have all the knowledge you want about the situation. You don't have the money to fulfill the desire. You don't know what's going to happen if you change course. You get scared about your past. You get scared about your future. There's a gap, isn't there? It's fascinating to me that Peter goes, trust God first, then do the right thing, and then add knowledge to that. And I thought about it. I said, you know, that's usually how it's worked in my life. Most of the significant events in my life, I haven't known every single thing about what was going to happen if I acted that way. I just knew that it was the right thing to do. I mean, take, for example, my own marriage. I, I had plenty of good reasons. My wife's a wonderful woman. <laughs> I had plenty of good reasons for marrying my wife. But we did not know what the future held. Matter of fact, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, he's now with the Lord, but my mother-in-law and father-in-law, they made this video. You know, the kind to embarrass people at rehearsal dinners where you, you know, the, go from diapers all the way up to college or whatever and you show all these pictures, you know. And then it says to be continued at the end, right? We're just getting married. And sometimes we'll, you know, uh, we hadn't watched it in a while because it was VHS. And we haven't gotten it digitized yet. Uh, so we stopped watching it whenever our last VCR broke. But we used to say, um, we used to say, uh, to be continued, we would say, if we knew how the story was going to wind up, would we do it? Not because we don't love each other, but having four children now, one with a major chronic illness, liver transplant, my wife induced into a coma for her own chronic illness, various other kinds of trials, death, hardship. My son's almost died like four or five times. He's doing great now, by the way, so don't feel bad for us. But I mean, we, we went through periods of trials in our life that were those kind of trials when you narrate them, people just kind of, their jaw starts to drop. Like, yeah, I do care about what's going on with you. I just don't want to say at this point. So that was kind of our family for a while. And we used to joke, if we knew what was going to happen, would we have moved forward with this? Now, that's a big example. But moving into that relationship, believe God called us to be married. As we came into those situations, God did supply knowledge. He did supply understanding. He did supply wisdom along with it. There is something about an adventurous life with God. God wants us to obey him, to act in relationship with him. Now, he never does this um, in just the craziest sorts of ways, by the way, we won't complete knowledge. It's not like God doesn't give us good evidence, good reasons to act. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is Montclair, New Jersey. You, I'm, I'm talking about the type A people, right? You know what I mean, right? <laughs> Spreadsheets. <laughs> like, we want all the risk. We want it all settled down, right? God just give us that. But when we act on what God puts on our heart, what we find is he then shows up with knowledge, wisdom, understanding. I think this is really also important when we find ourselves in those seasons where we wonder if it's worth it. Is it worth it to walk with God as a young person a certain way when all of your friends are not doing it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to remain faithful in a business context when you're being passed over for promotions because you're not doing certain things? It's never said. You feel it. You wonder it. I'm not trying to make you paranoid, but is it worth it? It is worth it, because as you live out your faith with virtuous action, God supplies the increase of whatever else you need, and therein lies the adventure. It would actually be incredibly boring 
to live in a certain way where we all knew what was going to happen before it actually happened. That would be really kind of a boring life. And I personally am very concerned that as we bemoan things like distraction from social media, as we bemoan sometimes in the church where the culture is going or where it's, it's not going, that we've gotten away from something far more fundamental. And that is encouraging one another and encouraging the next generation of how incredibly exciting it is to live the Christian life. It's incredibly exciting to live the Christian life. And I realized in talking to my own children, who grew up obviously as, as pastors, kids, that this was not the vision of the Christian life they got. And I remember being very humbled. I was a senior pastor at the church. Um, and so my kids date different periods of their childhood by books we were preaching through. Um, and so uh, my youngest daughter, who's now a junior in high school, but she would say, the only thing I remember about our past church, Dad, is the book of Acts. You know, you never got out, for, when, as far as I was cognizant, you never got out of Acts. Um, but I remember she told me, I said, man, how did you get this idea about Christianity? She said, I don't know, you were the pastor. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't the idea that drew me to Christ. I came to Christ through a bunch of crazy young life leaders who were college students who I respected. And they made Christianity look so incredible. And it is. And somehow, I think one reason why we have so many generations leaving, so much of a younger generation leaving the church is this type of understanding. If you walk closely with Jesus and you follow him, he is gracious and powerful to fill in the gap, whatever it is. We're not calling people to this kind of life. From the generous position, the humble position, the position of friendship that Peter is speaking from here. Sometimes we call for this type of lifestyle, but instead of starting with faith, virtue, and knowledge, we start at the very end with steadfastness and godliness. And what that comes across as, there's a big, powerful God, and you better fall in line. That's how that comes across. Rather than, there's an awesome God who loves you and gave the Lord Jesus Christ for you, and if you step out and trust him, he will meet with you. He will give you his very self. He will dwell with you. And when you walk with him, he will show up to close whatever gaps there are. Huge, incredible difference. That's what it is to have an adventurous life with Jesus Christ. And just close with this last verse. For in this way, you will be richly provided, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus who died for your sins so that he could be raised to life and give you his righteousness, is not only generous to take care of you now, but when it gets really hard now, when it gets really difficult now, when that gap between you've trusted him and it still not, doesn't seem to be working out, when that gap gets long, remember, the one who provides for you now has provided something even better for you in the future, an eternal kingdom. It's always worth it to know and trust Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this time. I thank you for these wonderful 
people here and the life in this church. I pray that you would meet with us in a fresh way this week, and that as we are called to step out and walk with you, Lord, that you would grant us great faith. Let us see once again that you're a generous, kind, loving God. Let us trust you, and Lord, be pleased to give us what we need when we do. And we pray it in your name. Amen.